Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity and Education. I am Allison R. Brown, and I am your host. I should actually say welcome back to Schoolhouse Equity and Education. We actually took a bit of a a hiatus as we were growing our organization. We've hired new folks, we have finished our strategic plan, and we're ready to jump into the second half of 2017. It's hard to believe that's where we are in this year. On today's Schoolhouse episode, we are talking about black boys and school pushout. How are black boys and young men impacted by school discipline policies and practices? Why is it that the youngest black boys are targeted for suspension, expulsion, and school-based arrests? We'll explore these questions and more with our guests. Zakia Sankara-Jabbar is the national field organizer for the Dignity in Schools campaign, and she's the co-founder and former executive director of Racial Justice Now in Dayton, Ohio, where she worked to organize parents for equitable education. Welcome, Zakia. Thank you. Dr. Howard Stevenson is a celebrated scholar, author, and now director of Forward Promise, a national program to support culturally responsive practices that buffer the effects of historical and systemic trauma on boys and young men of color. Dr. Stevenson is also a professor in the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania and director of the Racial Empowerment Collaborative at UPenn. Welcome, Howard. Thank you, Allison. Great to be here. Thank you both for being on with us. I want to start with you, Howard, to talk about what is Forward Promise? What do you aim to do? As part of the Racial Empowerment Collaborative, we have joined with uh, the Mount Moriah Group in Alabama uh, with Rhonda uh, Bryant, who's the Deputy Director of Forward Promise, to petition the Robert Johnson Foundation to support for the next four years about $12 million to be philanthropic towards organizations that are targeting improvement of the health of boys and young men of color and the relationships that those boys and young men decide are very key to their growth. So as a theme of the Forward Promise is heal, grow, and thrive, we're interested in, in programs and community agencies that are skilled at using an understanding of trauma and violence uh, from neighborhoods but also historical oppression that's both racial and colonial to understand how to improve the health of these young men and boys. Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell, we're very interested in culturally responsive practices that organizations are using, the importance of storytelling to get out these stories of trauma and triumph. And we're looking to see, uh, to develop new ways of evaluating the use of culturally relevant practices in this health improvement process. Howard, what is the narrative that you share in order to really light a fire under educators and others to keep Black boys in the classroom and make sure that they are nurtured in the classroom environment? A couple of things. One is, you know, everybody is is great at using the proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. But the question we're asking is, what does it take to raise a healthy village Mm -hmm. or a community of people who care and provide what we think are four essential promises? That is, to what degree are are your agencies or schools or educators or professionals delivering affection, protection, correction, and connection to boys, young men, and the people that they are serving or in connection to? And so those are basics that we expect to see in the delivery of services, whether they're educational or uh, around protection. 
And if we don't see those, what we expect in lighting a fire under professionals is say, why aren't you providing these? Mm. And why aren't you providing them fully, given the history of dehumanization of our, of our young men and boys? I love that. Will you just repeat that for folks? Affection, protection. Correction and connection. The definition, in, in a sense, affection would be nurturance that we think of. And correction is sort of accountability to relationship. Protection is monitoring where boys and young men are. And then connection is giving them access to other parts of the world and mobility throughout society. Each of these components is a physical, an emotional, and a cultural element that we expect to see and observe. Zakia, I am sure that resonates with you as a mommy. Your experiences as a mom really brought you to a unique place of understanding about the issues facing Black boys and young men in the, in the classroom. Talk about your learning journey and what you have come to know about Black boys in schools. When my, my son, my little Black boy, uh, was three years old in a private preschool located here in the Dayton area, was identified right very early on sort of as a problem from white female teachers, unfortunately. So as a response, right, to the way in which my son was being identified and, and really the way that it was being communicated to me and sort of the un- unanswered questions to my probing of the teachers and administration there at that preschool, it sort of, you know, forced me to do some of my own independent research to, you know, just try to get an understanding of what was happening because at the time I felt, you know, like very isolated, thought it was just about me or, you know, and my son. And so, you know, sort of being forced into the organizing and advocacy work um, around organizing parents in particular because the children are so young at that time. I found out that it certainly just was not about me, right, as a mom, or it definitely wasn't just sort of about my son. This issue is very systemic. It's been going on for a very long time, centuries, um, which is why I'm so attracted to what Dr. Stevenson and Ford Promise is doing and really their framing around it, um, really capturing sort of in, in this historical trauma, which makes so much sense because it's it's so connected. And so, yeah, that's been my journey, really, is to empower um, Black parents in particular uh, here in Dayton who are very disempowered for a number of reasons, systemic reasons as well, just, you know, not being welcomed, you know, into the environment of the school, really being railroaded in many ways. One key thing that I wanted to share that happened to my son was that he was not only identified sort of as a troublemaker, but only at three years old, he was identified to be seen by a psychologist, right? Mm -hmm. Because the idea was that oh, this kid has ADHD from the teacher, right, mm-hmm. who, in my opinion, is not qualified sort of to make that assessment. But she did make the recommendation. For me, I pushed back because I needed some more evidence or some more, I had some more questions about why you would want to refer uh, my child to see a psychologist. He's only three years old. And one of the questions that was never answered to this day is what is he doing that is abnormal that three-year-olds don't do? And so when that question wasn't able to be answered, again, as they say, the rest is history. And he's in fourth grade now. And the issues, you know, are still reoccurring um, just because the way that the school system set up to respond um, to black boys, I think, in particular. So, yeah, the work continues. You know, as we record this show, I am, of course, thinking of Jordan Edwards, the 15-year-old black boy who was shot and killed by police in Texas a couple of weeks ago. And I think of my own son, who's almost 14 years old and is truly enjoying his growing independence. 
And my my struggle with that, in part because of how the world views him. And, you know, I, I just have been wrestling with this question of what does the work look like to really make sure that the world sees our children as just children, that educators really experience only joy at black boys' accomplishments and curiosity and growth rather than fear at their perceived threat. Howard, how does trauma, and you talked about you know, healing and growing and thriving as, as the core tenets of your work. How does trauma impact and the trauma that can be exacerbated by schools? How does that impact black boys, you know, especially the youngest black boys who experience structural racism in schools at three and four? I'm a father of two boys, a 26 year old and a 12 year old. And since they were babies, and as parents, I still think of them as my babies in a way mm-hmm. that being young, it was still hard to help, hard to, uh, and the struggle of trying to explain when they were very young about their way and their style and their movement as not aberrant or not problematic or not abnormal. And you realize that people don't naturally get it. What's stunning and what's disturbing is that you still have to explain to, to educators some are well-meaning that their ways and their movements are not problematic. And so the stress on parents of color, particularly parents of black boys, I would argue is intense when they have to realize that not everybody sees their child as a child. And in a sense, in many respects, dehumanize them at very young ages. So trauma affects young boys when they are feeling like the world doesn't respond to them as they see um, educators responding to other kids. And they can talk about it. They may not always have the words to put in, but the senses, as I remember my, my oldest when he was four, feeling like the teacher doesn't like me. And us going to the school to find out what did he really mean by that, mm-hmm. it became very clear and stark. There's just different attitudes around discipline, expectations around behavior different and young children still pick up on that Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily see it as trauma but they can say it doesn't feel right Mm -hmm. and over time that repeated experience becomes traumatic and affects how they make choices how they retaliate or choose to retaliate not to retaliate how they swallow a sense that there's something wrong with them Zakia, you know one of the many things that i really appreciate about you and your leadership is how you are always tapped into your instincts. And it can be hard for Black parents who are taught to trust the system and listen to the system of education and educators. It can be hard to push back against that system. So I'm, I'm wondering what you say to Black parents about tapping into and listening to their instincts, when their their instincts are telling them that something's not right, when when uh, you know their child is coming home and saying, "My teacher doesn't like me," for example. I so identify with that, um, Dr. Stevenson. When you said, you know, your son came home and said that to you, my son actually came home and said the same thing to me when he was in third grade, mm-hmm. and that was just last year, and so. 
wow. I mean, he literally said the exact same thing. Um, and he actually said the teacher's, you know, name, which I won't say here. But, you know, again, the theme was that she was a white female teacher. And that has been a theme literally since he was three years old. And yes, Allison, to, to answer your question, that is so difficult with organizing parents in particular and organ- organizing black parents because you're exactly right. I think a, a lot of our socialization is deference to power. Mm-hmm. And so there has been stark consequences for us historically for challenging power. So there is a heightened level of fear and anxiety about challenging anything related to the school system. I've had parents in tears to me who want to fight back, but then that fear kicks in that, well, if I fight, it may make things worse, right? This is a reality. Mm-hmm. You know, personally for me, I chose my son, and now my children. I have a, a daughter now, Asada, uh, who is I'm waiting to see what her uh, preschool experience will be like. Mm -hmm. Um, She's very assertive, uh, young lady. But I chose to fight. And that time for me, it meant giving up my higher education. Because at the time I was in college when Amir was at that preschool when he was three. And because I was having so many issues and he was eventually expelled, I had to leave school at the time and continue to work full time. I remember making a decision. And I know that this is not a decision that a whole lot of our parents, probably the vast majority of black parents can't make, was that I'm going to start an organization and we're, we're going to fight um, because this isn't just about me. This is this is a more systemic issue. And the more I talk to parents, the more I realized how really endemic it really was. I mean, it was it, it was it was really, really horrible. But to sum things up really quickly, there's a couple things that I share with parents. Believe your child, mm-hmm. especially when they're really young. Believe them, affirm them, right? One of the things that I do with my own children is in the morning for a mirror, he has an affirmation on his mirror that he has to recite before school, sort of as his covering, if you will, for what he's going to be walking into. Right. And some parents look at me really weird when I say that. But when I put it into context of that, it's sort of like a covering. It becomes a spiritual thing. Right. And parents are able to connect to that and they respond to that. Another thing that I advise parents to do is really do try to develop a relationship with the teachers and administration. That can be difficult, very difficult. But to be very strategic, be friendly, and you can say you try to develop a relationship. Finally, I tell them, do everything with email, um, do everything in writing, never attend a meeting alone. Always try to take another trusted adult with you to meetings with teachers and administrators because there have been cases where if you go alone, they'll get amnesia later. So... um <laughs> Those are the things that I share with parents. And it's really about empowerment. When I share my own personal story with them, you know, they're like, oh, okay, well, it looks like that worked out for you. Maybe I'll try it, you know. But anyway, it's really just about empowering them. First of all, even letting them know that as black parents, you do have power. Mm-hmm. You do. You have a lot of power. And to use it in assertive, but use it very strategically. My son, when he was... 10, started a new school in fifth grade. And my husband and I went to the back to school night or parent teacher conference with his teachers. And they were talking about 
and I've shared this story, I think, on this podcast before. They were talking about how what a great student he is, what a wonderful leader, what a great person. And we went home and we shared that with our son. And, you know, we, we said, you know, the teachers were singing your praises. And, you know, this 10-year-old child looked up at us and he said, I don't think they expected very much from me. And children are very perceptive and as you said, Howard, don't often have the language to express what they're feeling or to express where their instincts are telling them there's something wrong. So this notion of expectations, there's dissonance there, I think, for Black boys and for parents of Black boys because, you know, we hear stories about racial disparities and, and how Black boys are underachieving supposedly on these standardized exams, and they are underrepresented in gifted and advanced courses. And then there is the, you know, rigor debate about, you know, rigorous learning environments and high expectations. Can you help parents to actually decipher all of that? If the expectations aren't there, how does that impact young people's psyche? And, and where is the truth in the disparities that we hear about? At the Racial Empowerment Collaborative, this is a great question. I mean, we've been, for really, for the last 20 or 30 years, we've been studying racial socialization. And in a nutshell, what it is, is does it matter when parents talk to their children about racial politics in the world, preparing them for moments that are both challenging and that are exceptional and supportive? And what we've learned is, over time, that even when parents haphazardly talk about, here's what we want you to do, it ends up being a protective factor for young people. And we think the reason is because young people are now prepared for when racial elephants show up out of nowhere. Mm. So the more conversations you've had about, guess what, somebody might see you a particular way, don't take it personal, and in some respects has been found to be protective. That we no longer now want to say, is it important to talk to children about race? We're now trying to say, how it should be, be for the specific situations that we know our children would probably like you to face. And even if they don't face it, they'll still be prepared. And over time, what we know is that it reduces their stress. So they're not overwhelmed. They're not taking it personally as much. They're not internalizing the negative attitudes of others. Um, so what parents can do is basically identify in their own lives how have they been traumatized by these moments, mm. hearing stories about those, getting feedback and support during or before they begin to talk to their own children about what's going on with them and what they should be prepared for. We think racial socialization, racial literacy are perfect approaches for parents to take in, in preparing for their children for a difficult world. I should pause here to say, Howard, that you are the author of the book, Promoting Racial Literacy in Schools, Differences That Make a Difference, which is a a bestseller book that parents should pick up. Zakia, you know, as an organizer and as a mom, what do you think educators need to know about working with and for the parents of black boys? To start with, they certainly sort of have to check their own, you know, perceptions and biases about what black parents care about. One of the things that we've worked very hard to push back on is this idea that, you know, black parents don't care about their kids' education. Mm -hmm. That's something, you know, that is absolutely repulsive. 
historically speaking and contemporary, right? Mm -hmm. But trying to really have empathy with parents who do struggle, right? Um, Because that's a reality and we we understand that. I know, especially here in Dayton, you know, and around Ohio, you know, sort of the restructuring of the economy really impacted places where, you know, General Motors and Ford was once sort of the booming economy, high school diploma, you can make a very high, you know, middle class income and and be able to support and send your kids to school and provide all those extracurriculars, you know, for for holistic childhood. Um, Those kinds of things have been replaced by um, the service industry, which obviously does not provide that kind of support system for families. But not only that, but also restructuring, right? We, we, We would need teachers and educators and school systems Um, You know, obviously not just here in Ohio, but even around this country to really restructure how education is done in certain communities. I think you have to respond to the students and families of your particular district that you're working with. And so if meetings with the school and the teachers don't work for certain parents at eight or nine o'clock in the morning or you know, even at four or five, you know, we should have school systems that are set up in a way that can respond to that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That are set up in a way where they're really trying to be inclusive and really set up parameters and, and meeting schedules or what have you to accommodate the families that they're serving. And for us, That just seems like a basic ask. You don't get to set up, right, you know, sort of this schedule or whatever it is and say, oh, well, you didn't show up. That means you don't care without actually talking to the parents first, right, Mm -hmm. finding out what works for them, finding out, you know, what their needs are, you know. I certainly think that the schools should be a part of the community. They are a part of the community. And by extension, um, the schools should really operate in that way. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our work, too, has been not just on around organizing parents, but also policy and advocacy. So pushing local, you know, school boards around the state to really respond and change policies, you know, to be more inclusive, family and community engagement offices, you know, making sure that they're staffing those offices, making sure that they're really participating in engagement and not these top-down sort of approaches that are also can be very condescending to parents. And Howard, when you talk about culturally responsive practices, some of the things that Zakia just listed are those what you're speaking of. I, I've I have visited schools, you know, private schools and public schools in wealthy white neighborhoods where the young people are engaged, they are comfortable, they are safe and protected, and you can tell that they feel valued and they feel like they are contributing to a bigger something. So, mm-hmm. what are the culturally responsive practices to get us there? for black boys to ensure that they have that security in their educational development. Absolutely. What Zakia mentioned fits right in with culturally responsive. And I think what we would add to that is an appreciation in the schools and climates of historical oppression and the ways in which in the history of particularly black boys or any boys of color, what in your history has been uniquely cultural that has helped you get through oppression. Mm -hmm. To what degree can we help you understand that historically and even today, your style, your attitude, your ways are not seen as human. Mm -hmm. 
and that there are creative and beautiful and handsome things about your ways, your style that you must embrace, even if other people don't embrace it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so a climate that, that is okay with boys who move, who have a little attitude, mm-hmm. that those are not markers to receive retribution or discipline, but that they have a, they have a particular way to express in the world. And that, yes, we all have to adjust our style, but we shouldn't have to undergo uh, hostility towards our styles. Mm-hmm. And so a culturally responsive environment appreciates behavioral differences, attitude differences, problem-solving differences, language differences, you know? So I, I think there are other ways to think about culturally responsive practices that appreciate history, cultural ways of knowing are just a few examples. So, Howard, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Shape Up. <laughs> what is Shape Up and what has it sure. done? This is a collaboration with uh, Loretta Jamont, who is the uh, a former Penn professor in the School of Nursing and now a provost-like role at uh, Drexel University. Dr. Jamont has been known for for decades, her and her husband, John Jamont, uh, as leaders in evidence-based work in HIV AIDS prevention and safe sex uh, risk reduction work for decades. And we collaborated together on the project where we trained African-American barbers in the city of Philadelphia. We were targeting 1,100, but we ended up with about 680, where we wanted to train the barbers to work with African men between the ages of 18 and 24 who were heterosexually identified. And we trained the barbers to provide health education to reduce unsafe sex and to reduce retaliation violence. And so Loretta and John were in charge of the intervention focusing on safe sex intervention, and I was the retaliation violence interventionist. And so what we've learned a lot about is the actual men who were targeted, not the barbers, we targeted 680. We learn a lot, as we know about black barbers, that not only barbers in black communities seeing themselves as heroes, but they provide education about a host of things. You know how black barbershop is. People will come in and say that, you know, black men come to a barbershop and never get their hair cut. And sometimes <laughs> we'll stay all day. <laughs> and part of that's because the culture and the atmosphere is safe, where you can be yourself, you can express yourself. And the men will disclose some very personal information about their lives, sexual experiences, painful uh, struggles that are coming up around violence that they won't share with a pastor or partner. Mm. And so we gave some support to the barbers to provide this health education, and we followed the young men, and we're still analyzing the data. But through the process of the work, we were able to anonymously treat about 17% of the men with an unknown STD. Mm. The men have targeted uh, very clearly how they can use the skills to reduce violence. And we think the way some of the work that we've been doing has helped to challenge a sort of insecure black manhood, right, where you have to try to prove that you're tough in every corner with partners and foes Mm -hmm. alike, that the stress of that is so overwhelming Mm. that uh, part of the intervention is how we challenge that as a way to define yourself in the world, which we think reduces the outcomes of violence as well as unsafe sex. Mm -hmm. We're just getting data now and learning as we go. But my colleagues, Loretta and John, are fantastic in this work. Thank you very much, Howard. I saw that in your bio, and I was really very 
very moved. And there is developing research, new research that that's kind of coming to the fore about gender normativity and the ways in which our social expectations of how black boys and black girls should comport themselves with these social definitions of what black boys and black girls should be <clears throat> actually contribute to push out. And so it, it feels very related to the, the shape of work that you've done. So Zakia, will you just close us out? What is the perfect school for black boys visually? What does it look like if you were to be given a, a blank check today to actually build the school of your dreams for black boys? What does it look like? First of all, it has to be a school that affirms their humanity, right? Just affirms their right to be, affirms their right to live, and is not, you know, sort of based on this whole fear and compliance and control of, of Black bodies and, and Black male bodies in particular. I also think that educationally, it certainly has to be diverse in, you know, how teaching methodologies and pedagogies are presented. So taking into context learning styles, I'm, you know, reminded of uh, Kanjufu's work around that, Dr. Jawanza Kanjufu. Also um, making sure that, you know, there's certainly a cultural component, making sure that um, they see themselves in, in the curriculum and see themselves, you know, not through the gaze of sort of oppressive narratives about who they are, but really about historically, you know, what they are and, and what they've been about and, and sort of some of the historical victories, you know, and the lineage that they uh, come from, um, the ancestors, you know, that, that they are connected to um, and still, you know, a part of. And I think, you know, it should allow them to be able to live up to their fullest and best potential, whether they, you know, want to aspire to be an entrepreneur or if they want to go to college or, you know, straight to career or military or whatever, that there shouldn't be sort of tracking, right? You know, you have to go into sports. You know, that's something that I cringe about um, sometimes. You know, my son's in fourth grade now. Folks have looked at him and just immediately assume, you know, oh, you've got to be a great basketball player or a great football player. And he's like, no, I actually like swimming. I'm great at swimming. Mm -hmm. And folks are usually shocked. Oh, really? Wow, you swim. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just making sure, you know, that we give them access to everything, you know, that, that they should have access to that allows them to live up to their fullest potential. I'm sure I'm leaving out stuff, but that's just what, you know, comes straight to the top of my, my head when it comes to designing schools that affirm and um, recognize black boy magic. Thank you, Zakia. Mm -hmm. I have to chuckle because my, my son, who's tall but does not play basketball at all, mm -hmm. is starting a new school in the fall. And we we today just got an email from the basketball coach at that school about him joining wow. the team. <laughs> so I, I <laughs> so I, I chuckle. That's about hilarious. That. Yeah, he he literally does uh -huh. not play basketball. Thank you both so very much. Zakia Sankara Jabbar is the national field organizer for the Dignity in Schools campaign. Zakia, how can people find you if they want to get more information about you and? DSC. Definitely check out dignityinschools.org. You can email me directly at Zakia, that's Z A K I Y A, at 
dignityinschools.org. And Dr. Howard Stevenson is the director of Forward Promise. Howard, how can people find you if they want to get more information about you and Forward Promise? They can go to two places. One is forwardpromise.org, and the other is uh, recastingrace.com. So uh, either one of those will get, get folks to the Race and Promise Collaborative or the Forward Promise work. And they can see our launch event if they go to the Forward Promise um, website as well. Thank you so much to both of you, and thanks to all of you for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Thanks again for listening. Have a wonderful week.